0: When I was in grade 10, the city of Collingwood, that's where I went to high school, the city of Collingwood did a big talent competition. They tried to make it really fancy, like America's Got Talent. There were corporate sponsors and musicians in the competition were kind of offered record deals. People in the top five got photo shoots. The finale for the talent competition was in this big theater with special judges. And I, yours truly, got second place. Hold your applause. I'm not the most talented person in Collingwood, but I'm in the top two, top two. And part of the prize for getting second place, besides the fame and power and money, obviously, was a website. I was going to get a website designed for me for free, which is fantastic because I really needed a website. And so I went in, and uh, this was 15-year-old Sawyer, and I, <laughs> I explained to the designer, I had, I had something very, very specific in mind. When the website opens up, I kind of want this like green fire, this green smoke to just kind of like, like bleed onto the homepage. This was what it looked like, Uh, ta-da, something like this, but moving. And so this would come out and then a picture of me would appear, boom! And I'd be this 15-year-old man of mystery. Just imagine this. Look at my eyes. Pretty cool, huh? Don't answer that. Don't answer that question. Okay, so this was the vision at the time. Have mercy on me. And I explained all this. I wanted this and this and this and this. Cool. Came back in a week and the designer showed me what they'd been working on. And it looked nothing like anything I'd been telling them. Where where are the flames? Give me the green flames. And they said, yeah, I know you said you wanted this, but I'm worried that when people see this website and if they look at that, they're not gonna think, oh, this is a high quality website designed by a professional, they're gonna think this is just some cheap template that he bought for a website online. That's what they said to me. And I thought, I don't care if it's designed by a professional or if I get it from a cereal box for free, give me the green flames. Okay, and so it, it just kind of became clear eventually that they weren't building me the website that I wanted, they were building the website that they wanted. 15-year-old Sawyer, I didn't really have the social skills to tell them that I wasn't pleased with the final product. I just stopped contacting them. I ghosted them. I walked away, decided I would start over and try and find some new website designer who would help actually build the thing that I want. This is kind of like the situation that God was working in when it came to the obedience of Israel. He's wanting to do this great work through them. He wants to bless them so they will be a blessing to the world and he sends his son Jesus, who was part of this redemptive plan. But awkwardly, uh, not all of Israel accepts the Messiah. So it raises this weird question of that God's plan somehow failed. He sent the Messiah but God's people didn't accept him. What do we do? And that was what Paul addressed at the very start of Romans nine, the plans of God failed, not at all. And then he says for the rest of chapter nine, this is actually what God has predicted all along. And he gave examples here and here and here and here and here. Israel has kind of behaved like the website designer, <laughs> trying to design God's people and God's plans the way they wanted instead of how God wanted to. And so the only thing that you do at this point is to start over, start afresh, go back to the original plans and God's stated intentions. So in the last two chapters, chapters 9 and chapters 10 of Romans, Paul has told the story of Israel from Abraham all the way up to the present day, right to his own day. And now it raises this question. This question we're at now is how is this story going to be taken forward? Where do we go from here? We've got all the way up until the present moment. What now? And this is where Paul and his fellow apostles come in and they're going to talk about their own mission and explain that them in going to the Gentiles, in going to the people outside of Israel, historically those who were not God's people, Paul and the other apostles in doing so with the good news of Jesus, they're not actually being disloyal or traitorous. That's not a word. They're not being disloyal God's plans and the purposes of Israel by going to the Gentiles, but they're actually fulfilling them. And this kind of raises a question for us today, you and I watching in 2022. Where do we fit into God's plan? How do we fit into all this? We can see Israel up until Paul, and we can see what Paul and his people were doing, but what do we do today? Do you ever wonder what we're supposed to do as Christians in our day-to-day? Do we kind of just get saved and then hang around and wait until we die so we can go be with Jesus. Is earth just a huge waiting room for eternity? Today, we're gonna be looking at one part of the Christian life that Paul is gonna be presenting with these final verses in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 21. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn to the book of Romans, chapter 10, we're gonna be starting in verse 14. Last week, we saw in chapter 10, verses five to 13, this beautiful equation that Paul was building. The first part of this equation was summarizing the law. He quoted Leviticus 18.5 and he said, the law was supposed to give life to those who adhered to it. The challenge is we, us humanity, can't adhere to it. And so instead of giving life, it's actually bringing death. It's it's condemning us. So he presents the law, Leviticus 18.5, and then he presents a promise from God to his people in Deuteronomy 30. This promise to them is that even when you're cast out and in exile from your sin. In the midst of all this, if you come and turn and return to me, I will receive you, I will accept you, I will redeem you, and more so, I'll even transform your heart, so you're able to keep the law as you were always supposed to. So Paul laid out the law, he laid out the promise, and then he showed how Jesus, the Messiah, he plugged him into the equation and showed how he is the fulfillment of the Deuteronomy 30 prophecy. He is the fulfillment of the law. And he plugged all this in and he showed this to all of us. And he ends in verse 13 by saying, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So right standing with God, now because of Jesus, it isn't dependent upon our perfection, but his. It's not dependent upon our life, but his. It's not dependent upon my obedience and my behavior, but his. And now everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is open to all people, Jew and Gentile and tax collector and prostitutes and fishermen and the lame and the deaf and the mute and the blind. Okay. With all that in mind, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's keep reading. Turn to verse 14. Beautiful flames. Beautiful Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written... How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is from Isaiah 52 verse 7. That's what's being quoted here. I added this in in brackets. There's going to be a bunch of these Old Testament references in brackets that I've added. Before I got married, I lived just up the hill from Bayview Glen at Bayview and Cummer. And there's a pathway along there. And I would take my dog my, my for walks. My dog for walks. I would take my dog for walks usually really early in the morning, kind of when there was still some mist, some fog on the fields. And one morning I was walking my dog and this man just appeared out of the mist. He was this tall guy, he was Jamaican, long dreads, very, very strong. And he was walking eight dogs at the same time, four in one hand, four in the other. And he appeared out of the mist and was watching me and my dog. And he started talking. He started uh, describing my dog to me. He said, this is its personality. This is what its behavior is going to be like. This is the type of training that you ought to do with it. And he said, I am a dog trainer. And these are the last words that he said. He said, follow me on social media. And then he just disappeared into the mist, into the fog. And that was it. I didn't know his name. I didn't know how to follow him on social media. Those were his final words. He disappeared into the mist. A few weeks later... I was walking my dog again, early in the morning, and this same man appeared out of the mist, walking 10 dogs at the same time, five in each hand. And he saw how I was walking my dog. I was using, um, if you know dogs, there's like a harness you can put on them, like a full body harness, and I'd clip my dog on the front. That's how I was walking him, trying to work on his pulling. And he saw what I was doing, and he said, everything you're doing is completely wrong. Those are the worst things possible you could use. You should do this and this and this and this instead to walk your dog. And then he said, follow me on social media, and then disappeared back into the midst. And I still don't know who this guy is, and I don't know how to follow him, but there's an open invitation to learn from him, and I don't know how to learn. Paul is saying that there is this news, this good news, but it's no good if no one knows. The word that's used here for sent, someone needs to be sent, it's the same word we use for apostle. So the term apostle, it's kind of a noun. We refer to a person as an apostle, but apostle is also like a sending. So an apostle is a person who has been apostled. It's the person who has been sent. Back at the time of this, uh, the book of Romans being written, the world, at least the area that Paul was in, was chopped up into kingdoms with kings. And when a king had good news, he would send an apostle, a messenger of the good news. That's what gospel means. The word gospel means good news. And when news is really good, when news is really, really good, even the the messenger themselves are esteemed. When the Amazon guy shows up with a package that I really, really want, I say, thank you so much. Even though I I paid for it, okay? So how, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, those who bring this everywhere, the person who's been walking in the desert in these dusty, dirty sandals. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And we have some really good news as heralds of the gospel. Good news about Jesus. So we say to people, there is a God. His name is Jesus. And he created the entire world and his name is Jesus, and we are loved by him, and his name is Jesus, and we have sinned against him, and his name is Jesus, and he still loves us even when we don't love him, and his name is Jesus. You might see a pattern here. And he came to redeem the world, his name is Jesus, and he lived a perfect, sinless life, the only person to ever do so, and his name is Jesus. And we did not accept him, but he was actually crucified by the people that he came to save. And his name is Jesus. And he rose from the grave, thereby paying the price for our sins and defeating our enemy of sin and death. And his name is Jesus. And he ascended to heaven where he rules and reigns. And his name is Jesus. And he's coming back again for his bride, the church, where he will judge the living and the dead. And his name is Jesus. Our message is about a king And the good news is that our King is a good King. Our King pursues us and our King loves us and our King forgives us and our King redeems us. And you really need to know this King. This is the Christian message. So if we lay out Paul's steps, he kind of works backwards. How can they do this if they haven't done this? And how can they do this if they haven't done this? And he gets to the bottom. So I'm gonna put them in reverse order, but these are some of the steps that Paul lays out. First, a messenger must be sent. An apostle must be apostled. The messenger must preach the good news. The good news must be heard. The good news must be believed. And the belief must be the kind that calls on God for salvation. So there's a sending, a sharing, a hearing, a believing, and a calling on God. And he's not just splitting hairs here. There are actual significant differences between these types of steps. It's not enough just to hear something. You just hear a piece of good news, Christ is Lord. Oh, that's nice. Consider the the 12 apostles. All of them heard Jesus preach and teach for years, but one of them was not transformed by this. Do you know who that was? Judas, right? He had the same teaching as the other 11, but he didn't believe and he didn't call. And it's not enough to hear and believe if you don't call. If you look at all the people interacting with Jesus in the gospels. Everyone's got different opinions of him. Some say he's a good teacher, some say he's a holy man, some say he's a prophet, others say he's a liar, Uh, he's a heretic, he's a false teacher, some say he's crazy, he's a false messiah, all the above. The, The group that seems to get it most right when it comes to the identity of Jesus is actually the demons. Whenever the demons encounter Jesus, they get it right even more than the disciples. They know who he is. They know he's the son of God, but they have not called on him. Book of James says, you believe the Lord is one. You do well, even the demons do, and shudder. So it's not just having true propositional knowledge in your head. Because you can know who he is, but you may not love who he is. The evil forces of this world, demons, demons. They know who Jesus is, they do not love who he is. So they'll say, you're the Christ, you're the Holy One, you're the Messiah, you're the Savior, but they haven't turned from sin and trusted him to be their Savior. Some of you have been hearing about Jesus coming to church, maybe raised in a Christian home, you've been hearing about this for a long time. And praise God, you might know some true propositions about the nature of God, about the Bible, about scripture, maybe even some historical facts about all this. That's great to know these things, you've come to step one, but have you crossed the line into step two, into the finish line and to be given an actual relationship with Jesus himself? How many of you can testify to this? That you heard about Jesus, you believed in Jesus, you called on Jesus and he came and he changed your life. Amen? That's why that's why we're here, that's why we're doing this. Now, we might see all this, you might see all this and think, well, that's, that's nice. It's nice to know how things work for Paul and his friends behind the scenes. You know, I'm glad to know all that, that those people, that's what they do. That's how they handle this, but I'm not one of them. The good news is you actually are, whether you want it or not. This is actually the commissioning of all Christians. Look at the great commission. This is what Jesus says to his disciples at the end of Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Now the 11 disciples, went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. That's wild. That speaks to the human condition. He's back from the crucifixion. Some saw him and some doubted. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. Sorry, it's a side point. Getting distracted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This call to share and serve and disciple and grow is our commission as believers to go and share this good news. So that's the first takeaway we see in these verses in Romans is that we are sent we are sent to be heralds of this good news and we can think of this in a in a general sense of both in our daily interactions when you're taking your kids to a hockey game or when you're at the grocery store and your colleagues at work there are no accidents or mistakes or empty spaces in the cosmos our god is far too efficient where we are is purposeful with God's plans of His word, His good news going out to all people and all places. So first, where are you? Who are you? What are the circles that you run in? and how God might uh, how might God use you to bring His good news to these people <clears throat> to these people and these places? We are sent. Also, perhaps you might be sent to a particular, people group or a particular place. You don't have to travel for it. You can even do this here. But who's on your heart? Who's God? Who has God laid on your heart? Maybe you have a real strong love for university students. We have missions partners. Think of Archie Kenyon and his family and how they minister to university students. Or maybe you have a strong heart for Filipino immigrants and you wanna reach that community here. Or maybe you have a love for single mothers in the community and you want to bring God's news to them and share God's love with them. Who's God laid on your heart as well? Now, I realize that all of this talk about evangelism, about sharing the faith, it can be intimidating and frightening and awkward. Oh, the pastor's talking about evangelism? God bless you. I'm just going to go to the washroom quick. I got to get some groceries. I'm sorry, man, Though no. <laughs> It can seem intimidating. It can seem seem frightening and perhaps rightfully so. It can be scary, it can seem confrontational, but let me, let me show you that this is actually more of a privilege and a blessing and an honor than perhaps you may realize at face value. So let's, let's walk through a couple objections. I tried to think through what are fears and objections that we may have to sharing the good news with people. The first is perhaps the fear that I don't know how to do it I don't have uh, these little formulas memorized. I don't have the tools for evangelism. I don't know how to do it. Well, I would ask you, how do you talk with people in your life about other things that have been happening in your life? How do you share other pieces of news? Perhaps we're overthinking this to start with. But here, if you wanna get practical, here's perhaps the two easiest ways that we can all share the faith, everyone, okay? The first is offering to pray for people. I have offered to pray for many people, believers, non-believers, people from different faiths. No one has ever said no, even atheists, even non-believers. I said, hey, can I pray for you? And they've said, sure, it doesn't hurt, I guess. I'll, I'll send up a flare. You can pray for people. You can ask them what they need prayer for, which is showing care for them. You can legitimately care about them. You can follow up with them and say, hey, I've been praying about this. How's this been going? And that can start a conversation. The first way is prayer. Praying for people is a great way to share the good news. The second is simply your testimony, your story. What has God done in your life? It's easy to argue back and forth about certain points and propositions. Not that that doesn't have its place but it's harder to argue about a story of what God's done in your life. And you can say to someone, hey, uh, I was lost and going in a far opposite direction and Jesus found me and brought me back into himself and he's changed my heart and he's given me a peace and a grace and a love and a joy that I never knew was possible. You can share that with them, see how they respond. Maybe they have some more questions. Maybe you can share this back and forth with them. But prayer and testimony, are the easiest ways to share with people the good news of what God has done in you and for you and what God has done for them and what God can do in them. Prayer and testimony, those are the two easiest ways. So that's fear number one, I don't know what to do. Pray for people and tell them what God's done in your life. A second possible fear or objection is, what if I don't know what to say? What if they ask a question and I don't know what the answer is, and I feel like I'm going to look stupid, and they're going to walk away and not know Jesus forever because I screwed up. Breathe with me. Breathe with me. There's a a couple things that you can do. The first is, if someone raises a question that you don't know, humility is the best course of action. You can say, hey, that's a great question. I don't know. Can I look into that and, and get back to you? Would you be interested in hearing about that? That's the first thing, that's the first thing you can do. You can look into that, say, hey, I don't know, and I would love to let you know. Because perhaps you think that you need to have multiple degrees in biblical studies, you need to know some Greek and some Hebrew, you need to have some philosophy and apologetics training, and then you're ready to go out and talk to all those people. Can I let you know, as someone who, um, I've been interested in apologetics and giving reasons for the Christian faith, for years and years and years and years. And I've been blessed and privileged to study many resources, books, watched lectures and debates, I've gone to many conferences and seminars. And for all of the intellectual preparation that I've done, I think I've only ever had two intellectual objections ever in sharing the faith, doing lots and lots of evangelism. The one time we were at Wasega Beach on Canada Day, just going around, to people we spoke to dozens and dozens, maybe a hundred people that night. And there was this one guy, he'd been enjoying some Canadian beverages, and he said, You you can't trust the Bible. It's been changed so many times. And my friend was talking to this person, tapped me on the shoulder. I turned and I said, well, no, we've got original documents, thousands of copies of original documents and manuscripts, and we can compare them against one another. And the biggest difference that we find is punctuation marks. So there's good reasons to assume that the Bible is the same message um, that the early disciples believed. That was it. And there was one more. I forget what it was, but I'll get back to you. So it may not be as big of a stumbling point as you think. And even if you do find a question you can't believe, uh, that you can't believe, that you can't answer, you can also get back to them. Hopefully that gives you some comfort. For most of the time that I've spent sharing the gospel, formally and informally, usually the objections are more, what would I say? Most of my time has been spent sharing the gospel with people around my age. So most of their points usually revolve around the fact of, you know, how can God say that how I'm living is wrong? Or how can you say that Jesus is the only way? They're more moral points or points around cultural relativism. um, And there are good resources for that. But the reasons that we think might be stumbling points actually aren't the reasons that at least young people are bringing up when I'm talking to them. So this second point, what if I don't know what to say? You can just say, hey, that's a great question. I'm not too sure. We can also trust that God will give us wisdom in the moment when God told Moses to go talk to Pharaoh and tell him to let God's people go. Pharaoh said, no, Pharaoh said, Moses said, I can't go do that. I'm, I'm slow of speech. And what did God say to him? He said, who made your mouth? So we can also trust that God will empower us in the midst of this. So that's our second fear. Perhaps a third objection to evangelism might be We don't need to tell people about Jesus. We just need to love and serve people. I would say that this is incomplete. Good works may help people, but only good news will save people. Soccer balls and sandwiches have their place, but they won't save souls. As Christians, we're part of God's redemptive effort to all of creation. And if we think of humans, we experience brokenness, we experience poverty in many different dimensions. We have impoverished relationships with ourselves. We have impoverished relationships spiritually. We can experience material poverty, spiritual poverty as well. And so if we come in and only address someone's material poverty without also giving them the good news that can help fix and ultimately redeem their spiritual poverty, then we're only giving them a half-truth. So we're called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Jesus fed the 5,000. Jesus met people's needs where they were. He healed broken people, and that's good. But that wasn't the reason Jesus was crucified. Feeding 5,000 people, go for it, man. But as soon as Jesus started talking about him being the Messiah, that he was the way and the truth and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him, and that we are in need of redemption and mercy because we are sinful and justly recipients of God's wrath, that was what got him in trouble. So it's incomplete to only do good deeds with our hands, but hold back the truth of the beauty of the fact that Jesus has come, that the Second member of the Trinity has become incarnate, lived a perfect life, died and rose and ascended for us again. You can't tell someone that by building a well. So we do both. One is incomplete without the other. Faith without works is dead, but also works on their own don't bear any cognitive content towards the person work of Jesus Christ. The fourth perhaps fear or objection is that I'm afraid they will reject me. Perhaps you feel this burden on yourself that if I don't say it right, maybe they'll reject me and they'll walk away forever and they'll miss this good news. Can I try and lift that burden off you? I don't want you to have this burden on you. There is no magic phrase that you've overlooked that if you only said these specific words in this specific order, then this is the silver bullet and this will make every single person come to Jesus every single time. That's that's not your job. That's not your responsibility. We're called to love everybody and serve everybody. And you tell them about the good news and then that's between them and God. That's something they need to sort out themselves. So we don't have to fear people not accepting it right away because that's not our job. We get to be messengers of the good news, but what they do with it, that's on them. And sometimes people need time. It's a very, very big decision to become a Christian. It's actually the biggest decision you could ever make in your life, I would contend. It's got the most eternal, eternal consequences. So people also aren't ready in the moment. Don't consider yourself a failure just because some people aren't jumping on right away. I wanna free you of that burden. So that's the first point, that we are sent. So the question, where do you feel sent to? How many people in your life know that you love Jesus? Or how many people in your life don't know that you love Jesus? We are sent and also we send. We send people who are called to particular groups. At Bayview Glen, we have many missions partners locally and globally. So who has God called you to support? That's also a way of helping to fulfill the Great Commission. We're not all always on the front lines with all these different people groups. We can be faithful where we are in supporting people who have gone and uprooted their lives to go to other places. They're on the front lines. We can be on the supply lines for them. Think of it like this. Usually, perhaps this is uh, one of the Western dangers of individualism. Imagine these, these concentric circles. And in the middle of the concentric circle is you. Number one, king of the show. And then in the second concentric circle is maybe your family. And then in the third concentric circle might be your country. And then the fourth the fourth concentric circle, circle might be the world. And you can imagine you in the middle and imagine uh, an arrow going out. And the farther that this line goes out, the farther we go out into all of these farther concentric circles, our interest, our energy, our passion, and our enthusiasm tends to die off. The farther we go out, the more our enthusiasm nosedives. But we as Christians are actually called not only to seek the interests of ourselves, to be interested in what's primarily happening in us, but we are part of a global body of Christ, a global movement that is happening. And we are called to the Great Commission, not only to us, ourselves who are sent, but to those who are sent as well. And there are incredible things happening globally with Christians who are being sent. I love uh, Wycliffe Bible translators. They go into parts of the world where Jesus has never been heard of before, and they create written languages for these people. These people have a language, it's not written though, and so they learn how to write out this language for them so they can put the Bible in that language so they can read and hear about the good news of Jesus. Incredible stuff. Okay, I'm getting off point. Now, after saying all of this, this grand chain of how people go from hearing the news and to calling into calling unto Christ, Paul now turns the focus back onto the people of Israel and their response to Jesus, their response to this chain of events. Let's continue reading. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. We're talking about Israel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And I put the reference in brackets. That's chapter 53. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? This is Israel. Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. He's quoting from Psalm 19.4. So people need to hear. Not all of Israel has obeyed. But they have heard this news of the resurrection of Jesus has gone out to all the world. Now, when Paul's saying all the world here, he might mean the Roman world, the Roman empire, where Israel was. Let's continue reading. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation... I will make you angry." This is from Deuteronomy 32. So now we're getting this claim from Deuteronomy 32. It's his proclamation. That Israel will hear and they will understand, but they will not respond in obedience. And God says, okay, you want to go to other gods? I will go and bring my blessing to other people, those who are not a nation. That should sound similar to the Hosea prophecy where God says, those who are not my people, I will call my people. So he's saying, no, they have heard. No, they have understood. And let's continue on now in Isaiah, the final verses. I have been found by those who did not seek me, I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me but of Israel he says all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So Paul is now laying out in this chain of reasoning. He's giving examples. Look in the writings and psalms. Look in the law and Deuteronomy. Look in the prophets in Isaiah. It has been predicted that the people of Israel would turn away from God's plan and that God would extend his family and his blessing and his covenant membership to all people. In chapter 11, we're going to talk about the future of Israel, of ethnic Israel and God's plan for them. Chapter nine was Israel's past, chapter 10 is Israel's present, and chapter 11 is Israel's future. But we're not gonna get fully into that until what God is going to do for Israel until after Easter, until after that series. But here, for his grand indictment, Paul is drawing from Deuteronomy chapter 32. Unfortunately, and I'm sorry this even needs to be said, unfortunately, Christian writers and thinkers throughout history have used these passages to justify their anti-Semitism and their hatred and mistreatment and prejudice towards the Jewish And that's a shame because uh, we should be looking at this, how God has interacted with his people then and view ourselves in it and ask, okay, in what ways does this apply to me? How is this not only a message for God's people then, but can this be a message for us now? Can this be a reminder and a warning to ourselves as well? When we look at the Bible, it's not full of good guys and bad guys. It's full of bad guys who need Jesus. In the church today, we're not full of good guys and bad guys. We are bad guys who need Jesus. So when we see God speaking to Israel at this time, this isn't reason for us to mistreat them. This is an opportunity for us to evaluate ourselves, okay? So in doing that and looking at this, think on the fact that just as like it was for them, so too for us, people who have been walking with God for a long time run the risk of taking it for granted Israel was full of families who had been walking with the Lord for generations. Maybe you've been in the family that's been walking with the Lord for generations. And now it's not good news. It's kind of old news. What used to be good news becomes old news. And so they were unfaithful to the covenant with God. And they poured out their affections on other things. God's been around for a while. It's taken for granted. Uh, Let's go seek out some novelty. I'm going to pour out my affections on this itself and God begins saving now a new group and Israel becomes jealous, jealous that God's blessings would be poured out on others. How would you feel if God started saving people from groups that you did not like? I don't know if ethnic tensions, uh, the jealousy would be the same today, but here, let's, let's poke on a sore spot. I imagine most of us at Bayview Glen living in North York, middle class, evangelicals, tend to vote conservative. Okay, probably more than 50%. How would you feel if God started saving huge members of the MPs, of the liberal and NDP parties? People that you thought, oh, those are are bad, godless people. Those people who vote that way. What if God was doing a mighty work amongst them? What if God is? What if God already has? Would we have joy for that? Or would there be some anger, some jealousy in the heart? Those people, I have to be with those people forever? Are you, are you really kidding me, God? You, you've got love for them, you've got mercy for them. Is there something we can learn here? This warning of growing lax and stale in our faith and our responsibilities, or this warning of the danger of letting our personal preferences, political preferences, ideological uh, preferences, our own comforts and concerns, determine how we think God might act in the world, how we want God to act in the world. We wanna act like perhaps we are the grand designers or the architects or the website planners, the website makers. Whereas God really is the one calling the shots and we're helping him to bring his kingdom to earth. We pray not my will, but your will be done. But look again at this final verse. Of Israel, he says, this is Isaiah 65-2. All day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. There's something we can also learn here. When there's strain on a relationship, when there's tension, the way that it's fixed is by holding out your hand. It's a posture of openness and willingness for restoration. A closed hand is a sign of a closed heart. An open hand is a sign of an open heart. God's heart is still open to Israel, to those who have rejected him. Who do you need to keep your hand and your heart open to? God is long-suffering and patient and gracious with those who have rejected him. So for those in your life who you think are too far gone, you've said the good news and they have rejected you. You can't save them, but you can serve them and speak to them and you can keep praying for them. You can keep loving them. You can maintain this open posture that, we, that God has with them. Not everyone will respond in faith. That was predicted there. Not all of Israel did. And God said, this is what would happen all along. But God's offer is to all people. And God is patient with those who reject his son. So let's, let's return full circle now to how do we fit into God's plan, what he's been doing and what he is doing and what he is going to do. We have this privilege and this honor of being ambassadors and apostles of this good news. We are apostles, we are heralds, conduits of his grace, recipients and administers of his mercy and his his love. And as we do this, we can learn from the examples of God's people, the dangers and pitfalls of mistaking our plans and our preferences for God's designs and his great purposes in the world. And when we are rejected, we can remember that God is patient and gracious and long suffering with those who reject him. And if he is, then we should be too. Our love isn't conditional on people responding how we want them to. So who has God placed on your heart? How can you show God's love to them and share with them the good news of what he has done for you, what he has done for them, and what he can do for them? Now church, let's respond to these great truths by confessing what we believe.